Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee. And this week, I'm excited to welcome our guest, Alex Hergot, who in 2018 was appointed as the Executive Director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council, or FIPSI. In that role, he was empowered to work with Congress and the Executive Office of the President to streamline the federal process and deliver unprecedented time savings for projects, including some of the largest renewable and conventional energy projects in the world. Alex, at a moment in time where everybody is focused on infrastructure, I really thank you for taking a moment to join the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you so much, Neil. I think right now in our country, the, uh, the the recognition is is that with more money from the federal government for sectors, whether it be service transportation, transmission, conventional and renewable energy, in addition to new energy hubs, clean energy hubs, including hydrogen and several other new new technologies that are making their way into the market. The idea here is to build back better. We first must, first must be able to build. Currently, that's not the case, and that's having a direct impact on the amount of investment that the private sector are matching to uh, to bring into uh, bring into the fold. So I'm, I'm glad to have this conversation with you and uh, and, and ready to uh, tackle any of the issues that you think are important. Well, let's start real quick at the origins of FIPSI. Uh, so you and I first got to know each other working as aides in the United States Senate. And there was so much hubbub this past year about negotiations over the bipartisan infrastructure framework that led to the bipartisan infrastructure law. Yet you and I actually negotiated a bipartisan infrastructure bill of our own back in 2016. And this was one of the key components of it. Can you kind of walk our listeners through the idea behind the creation of, uh, of this uh, institute? The reality is, is that laws and regulations by themselves are not going to fix the culture and behavior within the agencies on how they move projects through the system. In a world in which environmental applications that are submitted to uh, as many as 13 federal agencies across the federal family. There's no silver bullet that's going to fix any one permitting issue. It could be the Endangered Species Act. It could be something related to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, killing a bald eagle and, and various enforcement actions that might occur from that. Or Clean Water Act, the waters of the United States. There's up to 64 different laws that govern infrastructure development. You add on top of that, at least in the last 15 months, an additional 92 new rulemakings that have come out of the Biden administration. You add another 45 executive orders and then the, the myriad universe of guidance and ways in which these different rules are implemented. Then you have to add in what's happening at the state and county level. The reality is that 20 to 30 percent of all project costs, whether it be a broadband line, a transmission line, a new windmill, a new solar facility, 20, 30 percent of that is attributed to permitting costs. And that's before we even get to the litigation that might occur if the project is ever held up in state and federal court. And so there was a recognition that in the infrastructure bill in 2015, the FAST Act, that we needed to create a new kind of office that would be independent from any of the agencies, that would have an executive director with the power to compel agencies to keep timelines, not just timelines, but instead of having a single environmental document spread across multiple agencies that you might have to send an application into, that we would have one agency that was in charge that could call the ball, that could drive accountability on meeting milestones, not just at the very end, but all of the different milestones leading up to a final environmental impact statement, a record of decision, and an authorization to construct. In doing so, the office that was created 
the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council gave the executive director the authority to coordinate with the Office and Management of Budget to create dispute resolution so that at some point when agencies are pointing fingers at each other, that for some of these projects that are $200 million above, to deal with one or more federal agencies, that we would have a voluntary program where currently there are no fees that you could apply, have a permitting timetable actually put on a dashboard so you could track it, so you could try and address the black box that currently happens in DC. And for better or for worse, you would know what status various permits were in the process over the entire life cycle of the project, which currently is for any project over any sector, still remains two to four years to get environmental impact statement. And that's not doesn't include the time to construct or the time to buy the materials. But on average, the overall project from conception to completion in this country for an average energy or broadband or road and bridge project over $200 million takes about seven to 11 years. So this office was created and funded by Congress to, to address that issue. Tell our listeners, you know, you, you had the opportunity, you were the director of this program. Did it work? We managed over $400 billion worth of assets. And in a matter of three years, while standing up that office, we were able to save projects close to $7 billion and on average about two and a half years on environmental permitting timeframes. The way in which we were able to do that is to inject accountability, transparency, and more importantly, predictability. If a project is not going to make it over the finish line, you'd like to know that sooner rather than later. And the reason why that's important is that 98% of all infrastructure in this country is funded by the private sector. The additional money that has been generated by the IGGA bill and others are largely spending and using user fees, and in this case, gas taxes, that haven't been collected yet. All pipelines, all transmission lines, all broadband lines, all wind and solar facilities, those are entirely funded and financed by the private sector. And so although we have these federal dollars, the importance is is that reducing the risk on these projects has a direct benefit on inducing additional private sector investment to come into the market, to get off the sidelines. That also has a direct relationship to the private equity and debt markets, because the more predictability we have on a project actually getting online and paying back investors can reduce funding and financing costs by as much as 5 to 8%. And in real terms, that's billions of dollars that's not accounted for in that original number I get on the overall cost to a project. The important thing to keep in mind is that if we don't have this tool, there is no place, there is no office within the federal government where a project sponsor can go to to seek the kind of clarity that this office was able to give. Uh, The reason why that's important is people that pay the end cost for all that 20 to 30 percent overhead are either our private citizens. They're the ratepayers that pay the electricity bills. They're those that are paying additional gas taxes or additional water fees. And so trying to reduce that cost at the margins by getting the federal government out of the way or at least instilling some accountability is what the mission of that office uh, was able to succeed in doing. A lot of our listeners, a lot of people who follow this space, when they think of projects, when they think of permitting, they think of pipelines, they think of fossil fuel infrastructure. But really, a lot of the work that you did could be utilized to build out the transmission grid of the future to better get renewables to market. Can you talk a little bit about the work you did and just kind of lay out for our listeners that this isn't just about fossil fuel infrastructure. This is about all infrastructure. Yes, we're at a unique time in our country where 
the companies that used to back conventional energy are now entirely invested in the renewable energy future. The environmental rules and the regulations that apply to a transmission line are the same that apply to an offshore wind facility or to a solar facility. You can no longer discriminate by sector on what rules apply where. And so what's good for renewable energy is good for a long, uh, a long linear conventional pipeline. Uh, many of which we haven't built since the 1960s and 70s. And as we're looking at soaring energy prices, whether it's natural gas or whether it's nuclear, whether it's a transmission line that is taking 600 megawatts of, of solar energy and distributing it back into California, we're looking at a, a true all of the board fix to the permitting issues that, that are holding these projects back. And so when it comes to a transmission line, once you figure out what you're doing with the endangered desert tortoise, then you must move over to figure out what you're going to do with the water issues and the aquatic issues. You can have, when I say there's up to 13 federal agencies, all of them are governed by their individual regulations and laws. There's not one single law or one single silver bullet that affects transmission or broadband or an oil and gas facility or refinery that doesn't impact the others. So you can't look in silos when we're trying to address the issues that are increasing costs that ultimately get borne by the end user, the ratepayer, the citizen. So this is an opportunity where you don't have to pick sides. We don't have to pick sectors because the fixes that we make for renewable energy transmission line is the same for pipeline and we can't discriminate with those. That makes it easier for us to exclude politics in the nature of trying to reform the process. And that will directly benefit everyone and all sectors. I've been saying for some time that the way to really get policy right and deal with climate change while also maintaining reliability and energy security and efficiency is to make energy policy boring again. And while it may not be great for a podcast, what you're talking about here is really boring and technical and probably the right thing to do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the reality here is the average American citizen has 30 seconds of their day to absorb information that's outside of their daily lives. And largely that's about Ukraine, start, it's about COVID, and it's about other things. Once you start talking about permitting, you really start to lose some folks. They're trusting that the folks that they put into office are actually looking out to do the hard work, the boring work to fix these problems. And let me just talk about a bit, a bit about the costs and how they get broken down. The average gas tax is 18.4 cents uh, a gallon. The average family of four over a course of a year spends about $160 in total gas taxes. And that supports the 44,000 miles of interstates, the 4, mil 4 million miles of roads and so forth. We always focus on the gas taxes because that's what people want to talk about or gas tax holidays when gas prices go up. But at an NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislators meeting with, with about 4,000 legislators from across the country that are on the infrastructure committees, I asked them at what unit of measure and how much is the average bill for water. Well, the average family of four pays about $120 for safe and drinking water. That's gone up about 10% over the last two years. Then you add in the cost you're paying for natural gas, natural gas bills. Any, they, a natural gas bill used to be 60 bucks and the, the height of summer or winter used to be 60 and now it's about 100 bucks. So what you're talking about is the overall utilities have increased about 20 to 30% over the last two years alone. But because those get distributed over your monthly bills, when you look at it over the course of a year, you're spending an extra thousand bucks on water and a thousand bucks on on electricity and a thousand bucks on gas. That compared against the 160 bucks for an entire year you're spending on the gas tax. What happens? The true victim of all of these delays are folks are seeing these bills and the that are that are increasing and think that it is somehow just part of inflation or just part of average energy costs or the cost of natural gas going up. No, that's not the case. We have a tremendous capacity need for new infrastructure in this country and the failure of which to have 
is creating a supply and demand issue that is creating real new costs that can be avoided. Bringing those to the surface in the light and in the fold of a permitting conversation is really what needs to happen so that we can draw the real impacts of these delays to the every average day working person. But how does climate change fit into all this? You know, we, we saw a controversial ruling around the social cost of carbon. A bunch of Republican state attorney generals had challenged this. There was a stay on the Biden administration's ability to apply the social cost of carbon that the Supreme Court didn't take up on ripeness issues. How does the debate over carbon mitigation play into permitting and, and getting this necessary infrastructure in place? This, again, goes to my question of fixing things in the silo. Uh, we have close to $600 billion worth of new renewable transmission offshore wind and solar facilities that are currently experiencing two years of unanticipated delays from when they began the project two to three years ago. $120 billion worth of offshore wind projects, largely in the Northeast, are going to find out in the next two months that they're going to be delayed an extra six months to a year. What that does is it challenges the completion dates with PPA agreements and others with, with utilities. And so on one hand, we're talking about what is the cost of carbon, but on the other hand, policymakers in Washington, D.C. are doing nothing to advance the renewable energy that would be the backstop or would, would allow for an easy transition away from traditional fossil fuels and coal-fired facilities. And in doing so, the, we're seeing a 200% increase in MISO and some of these evolved energy markets in which we, are, we just don't have the power to meet the demand. And as a result in supply and demand and ec economics, when it comes to these demand markets, electricity and other utilities are going to continue to skyrocket because it's a good thing to talk about whether or not we're rebalancing our energy, our energy source sectors in the U.S. to more renewable. But we actually have to build the stuff. And most of the, the large scale projects that I just mentioned won't be in full operation for five to six years. So what are we going to do in this five-year period? We can talk about the social cost of carbon, add additional headwinds that add on to that overhead cost. But if you're not going to actually build the projects on the back end, then uh, what are we talking about here? You guys did a lot of good work during your tenure. Elections have consequences. We've got a new administration in place, new leadership at 50. Can you talk about it? This doesn't seem like something that ought to be political by nature. Has the Biden administration you know, put muscle behind this? And, and are you seeing a continuation of the work that you did, or are they taking a different approach? Executive Director Christine Harada, who is, is now the new Executive Director of the Fer Permanent Council, which, which is funded at about $10 million a year, which is about two to three times the size of the Council of Environmental Quality, which, which folks may know. Those are the, the, uh, the office within the White House that puts out new rules re regarding the National Environmental Policy Act and others. Uh, she has a tremendous job on her hands. She has a tremendous challenge. The reality, however, is that that Federal Permanent Improvement Steering Council doesn't set policy. It lives within the world that we actually live in, not the one we want to live in. And her job is to, to insert accountability and predictability on meeting timelines. But if we're seeing that these permitting timetables that are on the dashboard of what she runs are continuing to see delays where federal agencies are pointing the fingers at each other or pointing, pointing the fingers at the project sponsor with the exhaustive new requests for information in order to complete some of these milestones on some of these big, big, big permits that are required. She can only do so much. At the end of the day, there's not a safe space in Washington to have an honest discussion about how are we going to take down some of the obstacles within these individual statutes, whether it be the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act. And so I always say that the impression of a solution is no solution at all. Focusing all our hopes and dreams on this council to fix all our problems without taking a hard look on all of the other regulations and, and new laws that are on the books 
that are making it difficult to build new infrastructure, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. The Federal Permanent Council is an accountability tool, and it's a voluntary program that currently has 15 active projects of the 300 projects that are currently out there that could potentially apply. So it's only at the margins creating best practices and shepherding projects over the finish line, but the the universe of projects that have not gone to the council and may not qualify, and those include new lithium and mining projects and others. We're looking at new broadband and transmission projects, which joined the Federal Permitting Improvement Council three to four years ago, but are still looking at five to six years before they'll be in operation. We can't allow that to be considered a silver bullet that's going to solve all of our issues without doing a deep dive into what actually needs to be changed in the real world. So what I do at the Permitting Institute, a nonprofit that we created that's going to bridge the gap between state and federal decision makers and some of the other problems that we're having, is provide that tough truth to explain that, yes, elections have consequences, but so do the actions that are happening now that are holding back new infrastructure development. We can't have a Build Back Better law that doesn't do anything to allow us to build if we're still suffering the same obstacles, the same issues that we always have before. The bipartisan infrastructure bill do anything in your view to better enable the work you were trying to do? So there were two things that happened in that bill that were important. One is that the Federal Permian Improvement Council, also known as FIPSI, was set to expire at the end of this year. That extension was removed. So the Federal Permitting Council is now an improvement fixture within the executive office of the president as an independent agency, very similar to FERC or the Service Transportation Board. Although it is a senior level political position, it doesn't report directly to politicals at the White House where they'll be able to weigh in and put their fingers on the scale. That was an important move. The other was was something called one federal decision. That was an executive order that I helped put together with you and, and, and many others in the White House that did really one simple thing. And that was to put one agency in charge that would drive accountability through different levels within agencies so that you could elevate disputes and you would actually be able to track primary timetables. The problem with one federal decision that was in law as a result of the bill is that it only applies to DOT projects. It doesn't apply to the other 12 sectors. It doesn't apply to FERC projects or to Army Corps projects. Yet when many people talk about one federal decision and the fact that it was codified in the IIGA bill is that they forget that there's an exclusion that restricts it from being used and implemented on any other sector. So when it comes to the Federal Permitting Improvement Council, they are excluded from looking at DOT projects. So we have this stovepipe nature within within what these programs will be able to to allow for. The problem is we're seeing about is a a 20 to 40% delay on all the one federal decision projects within DOT currently. And there are discussions in Capitol Hill to expand one federal decision more broadly to, to other agencies. But the other problem is is that there are many loopholes within one federal decision. At any point in the process, what what it was set out to do was to institute two-year timelines after a final record decision was issued for a project. All the remaining cast of, of permits that may be required have to be issued to the project sponsor within 90 days. Is that agencies continue to point fingers at each other. And one of the major loopholes is that at any point for good cause, a project will need to be paused. And that could be as much as The project sponsor hasn't gotten back with the request for information that we've asked for, or that the Fish and Wildlife Service is pointing its finger at the Corps because the Corps hasn't gotten the information to the Fish and Wildlife Service they need. So although the overall timeline could be two to three years as far as the government is concerned, with all the different pauses that are put in, it might be a five or six year project at the end of the day, but that's not truly being accounted for because you can pause a project at any time. That's where the illusion of success is no success at all. 
those are the only two real permitting programs that were put in it. Now, there was some other funding in there for siting, for transmission lines, and a couple other issues that helped build the institutional capacities at the local level. But wasn't truly addressed is that we have about 180 vacancies at the Bureau of Land Management. We have 220 vacancies at the Fish and Wildlife Service. We have 300 vacancies at the National Marine Fisheries Service, and the same thing at the core regulatory offices. You can't continue to pump money into the appropriation bills for these folks to continue to retain and recruit the best and the brightest to work on the government side when you have these tremendous deficiencies in in the staffing capabilities. And as a result, you can't just pump projects through the system and then hope that you're not going to get a response in a, re- a reasonable amount of time because we just don't have the people at the agencies to do this work. You can't just throw money at the problem. None of those issues have been addressed in the current bill. So the idea that somehow we have mission accomplished pointing to those two provisions, one federal decision and the extension of the Federal Permit Improvement Council would be a, a tremendous misstep in the new work and being honest about the work that is yet to come. Assuming you can work through some of these challenges and these problems, what does the future look like? I hear a lot about hydrogen. There's a lot of excitement there. Talk about it. I mean, you know, we're, we're sort of behind our European allies when it comes to hydrogen. What's going to be necessary to permit the infrastructure to get hydrogen to become a reality here in the United States? Well, I think one of the major issues is, as I pointed out earlier on the podcast, when I talk about how all of this infrastructure is entirely financed by the private sector, whether that's international funds, whether that is U.S. pension funds, you name it. What I am seeing in the projects that we continue to work with in the Permitting Institute, the nonprofit where we are, our staff, our former senior federal members of the administration, including the Biden administration, is that we're seeing a lot of project abandonment during the due diligence phase, in particular in these new hydrogen projects, whether that be blue or green hydrogen, because the regulatory and development risk to get these things to the finish line is a real problem. If I had an infrastructure fund and and I I was looking at investing in new sectors, yes, I would be excited about the new technologies, but I would temper that with the significant expectations on when they actually might come to market or I might be able to see an ROI on this investment. There's a tremendous chilling effect on new investment coming to the table. So although hydrogen and other new technologies, whether that be SMRs on the nuke side and a couple others, look to be fairly bright for the future, you have to actually induce investment. Folks, they have to actually have a predictable expectation on when these projects might be permitted. And currently that doesn't exist. And so whatever opportunities we think we might be able to exploit to change the universe of of energy in this country is being held back dramatically by the lack of predictability in the evolving permitting landscape. And that's a real problem. You have to have someone in the private sector that's willing to put that money at risk. And what I'm seeing is a tremendous amount of investment being pulled back and getting back on the sidelines because they don't see a future in which either the results of election consequences or at least at the at the permitting level, they see a path forward. Well, Alice, you've covered a lot of ground today. Really appreciate you joining us. For listeners of the Plugged In Podcast, they know we like to get deep in the weeds on substance, but we also like to end with something light about our guests. I want to touch on a couple of things here. First, on a personal note, you and I first got to know each other working together as aides in the United States Senate. You were an aide to Senator uh, James Inhofe of Oklahoma, who's retiring. Can you just take a moment to kind of reflect on the influence that he's had on your life and your career, uh, as well as on Oklahoma and Washington uh, throughout his 
distinguished career in the Senate. Well, I appreciate that. And you know all too well because you were on the Senate floor when we were crafting some of the largest bills in the history of our country. But whether it was Flint, Michigan on the Water Resource Development Act, where we brought $100 million to the folks of Flint when they absolutely needed it, that takes real compromise. And and as you know, their, uh, Senator Barbara Boxer from California couldn't be more f- further away from Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma on, on the political spectrum. But the two of them came together back in 2007 to override a, pre- a President Bush veto on the Water Resource Development Act then, which really created a pathway for a recipe for success, was finding two individuals that can't agree on anything else, whether it be on climate change or on social policy. But when it came to infrastructure, they teamed up and were a force that I've never seen before. And I learned a lot from that experience because regardless of what your political persuasion is, coming together to actually fix real problems does take real compromise. Enough, no one's going to get everything that they want. And what something that Inhofe would always say to me was, Uh, The hyperbole of our flanks make it difficult for us to step over the line and actually admit that maybe we haven't figured out all the right solutions at the right time. And then not everyone's going to win. And there's going to be shared pain on both sides in order to make the tough decisions that need to be had. And yes, he would always say, I'm in in a very short list of senators that aren't trying to run for president. So I'm not worried about the consequences as long as I know that I'm doing the right thing. And we need a little bit more of that uh, these days, whether it was your old boss, Senator McConnell, who ran and still continues to run the Senate in a way in in which compromise, I believe, is possible. I think that what Inhofe, his legacy will be, is that bills that folks never thought would get over the finish line did because people put the American people before themselves and actually cut the deals that needed to be cut. And I think that some of the unsung heroes uh, will, will never get the proper due, but I, I hope that the, the legacy uh, with Senator Inhofe will prove out to, to show that the, the guy made a real impact uh, and has done things that, that he may never actually get credit for. And you were on the front lines for seeing that. One of the best stories that I can imagine is when there was, wasn't enough time on the Republican bench on the Senate floor where staff could sit to watch members on some of these marquee votes, you, myself, my staff, we would go sit on the Democrat side over the benches, which is kind of unheard of. And I think senators would walk up and look at us on the Democratic side of the aisle and, and are asking, why is the head energy staffer on the Republican side for the Senate that being yourself and and the head of the Environment and Public Works Committee sitting with the Democrats, because that's how we operate and that's how we work. And I feel like we need a little bit more of that these, this day and age. And it was fun and it was enjoyable. I agree. We need more of that. Now, you're a guy that works tirelessly. Clearly, anyone listening to this can see how deep in the substance you are and how energetic you are about this. But you've also had some life changes of your own lately. You recently got married. You're now a dog owner. Tell our listeners what that transition has been like. Uh, it's gotten to the point now where uh, when I testify in front of the House and Senate or when I come home, now when I talk to my wife about permitting issues, I get about 30 seconds before we have to talk about something else or else I get in trouble. So I think new life, new changes, they present uh, new opportunities to, be, I guess, find other things to talk about than boring permitting. But at the end of the day, you know, one of the things to go back to Inhofe, there's got to be people that are willing to do the, the tough work that nobody wants to do. And that's how I feel about the permitting space. So working with you and why I appreciate this podcast is, uh, is that we continue to take on those challenges that nobody wants to talk about and put them in a way in which we can hold people accountable for the real decisions that need to be made and what the consequences are for not doing them. Being married uh, is, is, is uh, allows for more time. Pretty, uh, we just hope that uh, as you, who is a, a father of three, Neil, you know all too well. Once kids are on the horizon, I, uh, I hope that I can still do some, some permitting work. But yeah, no, new life stuff, new funness. Uh, it's good to be married. It takes, a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of other things off the table that you normally would have to worry about. Well, you're doing an amazing job at life, both professionally and personally. Alec, thank you for your service to the country, your continued commitment 
to finding better ways to streamline the permitting process and get the necessary infrastructure that Americans need built in place. Thank you for joining us this week on the Plugged In Podcast. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.